Hello and welcome to What Were You Thinking? I'm Laura Round and these podcast episodes are brought to you in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival. In this episode, I speak to Anne-Marie Trevelyan, who until a few months ago was Secretary of State for International Development until the department merged with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. She was also recently appointed as the UK's International Champion on Adaptation and Resilience for the COP26 Presidency, although this episode was recorded just before she was able to share that news. We discuss her love for defence, hosting the Global Vaccine Summit, and her learnings as a minister. This episode is supported by UNICEF UK. UNICEF is the world's leading children's rights organisation, working in 190 countries and territories around the world. They support children by defending and upholding their rights in line with the UN Convention on the Rights of a Child. And with their partners, UNICEF ensures more of the world's children are vaccinated, educated and protected than any other organisation. Every child can shape our world and seize a future they deserve, but only when their rights are protected and they are given the chance to survive and thrive. UNICEF UK believes that the UK government, through its 2019 manifesto commitments to end preventable deaths, ensure every girl has 12 years of quality education and tackling climate change, has an important role to play in making this possible for children around the world. We must not allow hard-won progress to achieve children's rights to be derailed by the coronavirus pandemic. And on Tuesday the 24th of November, which is next week, UNICEF and Big Tent are hosting an event with Anne-Marie Trevelyan. Join us for registering at bigtent.org.uk. I'll be hosting and I hope to see you there. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for coming on What Were You Thinking? It's um, a real pleasure to have you on. And, you know, your your year has been really interesting. Uh, you know, obviously you were in cabinet. Uh, now you're um, I, not in cabinet. You know, you're back benches. I'm uh, convinced that is only a short period of time. But, you know, you've clearly had a very interesting year. Before we go into sort of your life as a minister and, uh, you know, the impact of a pandemic and your time at Diffid and all of that, I thought I'd start off going back, you know, starting off with the question about which individual uh, or which person in your life has had the sort of, you know, a real impact on your, on your thinking. So Laura, this is a really interesting question and it's lovely uh, to be with you today. When you gave me forewarning of some of your questions, I'm sure not all, uh, I pondered them and it's a slightly odd answer because the individual that's had the most impact has done so in absentia and I think it's my dad. He died when I was only two uh, of the third heart attack which killed him aged 41. You know, nowadays modern medicine would have ensured that he'd have lived a full life but in 1971 technology hadn't got there uh, and I was brought up by an amazing mum uh, aged 32 left holding a baby literally uh, with the loss of her husband um, and he was a political journalist he was a, a, a passionate believer in all sorts of issues but I never met him but his friends always talked to me about him and I grew up in this loving relatively poor but really loving household with my mum and my granny but always in the room uh, was the man who wasn't there uh, and I think my mother must have given me a sense of his uh, passion for his daughter even though he wasn't there uh, and I always wanted to do as well as I could 
And when you asked me the question, the question wasn't, did I do that for my mum? No, I didn't. I did it for my dad, which is bonkers when they're no longer there. Um, but it has driven me always to be the best I can be. He was, the way his friends talked about him, someone who was very uh, clear-eyed in his views, uh, never uh, shy of speaking his views. Sound familiar? Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so maybe it's just genetics. Maybe there's nothing you can do. You just turn out the way you do. But I always uh, felt empowered by the fact that my dad was like that. And that therefore, if I wasn't, I was somehow not trying to reach my full potential. Mm. Um, and my wonderful granny, who's no longer with us, who, uh, you know, spent a lot of her free time, you know, looking after her granddaughter, as well as my amazing mum, always used to be very um, direct about things. Um, and I, don't, I never felt anyone pushed me. I just felt they empowered me to believe in myself. Uh, and they used my dad as an example, I think, always of someone who, if he believed in something, got stuck in and fought for it and stood up for it. And I suppose as a journalist, you know, the seeker of truth in any journalist uh, is exactly that. But that has always been the root, an extraordinary security, I think, for me in standing up for what I believe. You know, when I eventually became an MP, um, you know, the only thing that matters is that you can look yourself in the eye after you've made a decision you are the only person for whom you know the decisions you take uh, matter at the end of the day because you have to live with yourself um so uh for me that individual is the spirit of my dad it's the sense of uh family and carrying his name uh but fundamentally of a man who stood up for what he believed in and that I was capable underneath that I should too. And now it's a habit I can't possibly get out of. <laughs> I mean, that is um, very, very young indeed. And um, you're, gosh, I'm just, you know, hearing you talk, I was thinking about your mother and, you know, what that must um, have meant for her. And you talk about your grandmother, mm. obviously playing in it, stepping in and playing an important role, but what an incredibly difficult circumstance um, to be in and I, I I didn't know that about you at all no I think I think my mum I mean who's an amazing woman um very very different to me very different to me uh very patient with her very uh stubborn and determined daughter but you know we had very little in material ways but we had a roof over our heads uh and education was everything uh, understanding that uh working hard getting the best out of the education that you had was the best tool, the most important thing she could give me, along with, you know, love and stability. Uh, extraordinary gifts for a mother to impart to her daughter. Extraordinary. Mm. Uh, and she still does it now. Now she can perhaps sit back a little more and watch me be a hopefully half-decent mother to my kids. But um, an amazing sure. woman, but really hard. 32 in 1971. She'd, she'd been a, you know, she'd been a a publisher she, she worked in publishing but clearly you know she was a single parent with a small child so she you know just found ways to make ends meet to make sure that she was always there for me I don't think I can recall a day where I needed a key to my front door she always made sure she was home when I was there amazing yeah. woman yeah brilliant yeah that's that is um very very moving um indeed and uh, it's interesting actually on throughout this this series you know it's not a surprise really but 
um, the role of parents and and mothers in particular is just you know has been um, has been mentioned a great deal. Um, so you know, not that it's surprising, but it's still it's just nice to hear that you know the stories, personal stories from from people of whom you normally wouldn't wouldn't hear about um, those sort of things. I mean, when um, I'm just curious about you know now we're talking about this this topic when. What about a place that you've visited or, um, I don't know, um, it could be anywhere really, but, but you would say also has, has had a real influence on you? So I would say, again, not a, a specific location I visited once. I've never had any, you know, Damascene moments. I'm not really built like that. I don't think I'm far too practical and sort of sensible about life. But I think my primary school... Um, which is a little school uh, in West London where I grew up uh, with some extraordinary teachers. So I come back to the point I made earlier about education and maybe, maybe that it, it, it feels like a really important place for me because education was such an important feature of my childhood. Uh, but it was a place of safety and it was a place of uh, discovery. I'd been at a different school before that one where uh, I'd been out of kilter with other kids and I got very bored and I wasn't allowed to read different books. Um, and my mum moved me uh, because she could see that it was, it was really, I was finding it difficult. So this, this little primary school that I ended up in uh, was, again, it was really empowering. These teachers fueled uh, hard work, but self-belief that, you know, if you put your back into it and you try, you can get better and you demonstrate it. I think maybe the beauty of a small school is that, you could see that and you know you're in an environment where um it was uh, easy for teachers easier for teachers to be able to really uh, give time to their pupils um but i went on to a, a secondary school which was i was very fortunate um St paul's girls school um funded by friends of my late father's um and very different where uh, academic excellence was was sort of expected um but in this primary school, there was a, a sense of empowerment and teachers who, one particular teacher, so I'll come back to people again, but it was this place, it was this wonderful little building. I remember it with a, uh, with a yard with a high wall and a, um, a, gong, a gong in the hallway and a wonderfully old-fashioned headmistress. It was very, very strict about uh, personal self-control, not running in the corridor. and. Um, showing respect to others um, those really profound roots of um, relationships with the rest of the world because at the end of the day when you leave the big wide world and then it's you actually those are the things that set you on a on a course how you interact with other people and how you're able to interact with people who are all different it was probably yeah. some of the best grounding for being a politician without realizing it because you deal with the whole wide world literally no, exactly. That's very true. You you talk about the impact of, of of your family, of your teachers, and you've mentioned a few times sort of the um the lessons sort of that you were taught about, you know, reaching your full potential or, you know, your desire from a very young age to want to reach your full potential. Not to say you can't reach your full potential without being an MP, but you know, obviously for you, you you became you've been a cabinet minister. I mean, that's definitely pretty high up there. When did you realise you wanted to become an MP or go into politics? 
That's a, it's a it's a question that actually we all get asked a lot, but I don't think we necessarily stop and think about it. I didn't want to be an MP when I was 10. Um, I became politically aware when I was nine, 10 years old during the winter of discontent. So my uh, ride to school, to this lovely little primary school on the bus, went past a crematorium. Um, and through that winter of discontent, there were, you know, across London, you know, piles of bins everywhere. But one day there was a pile of coffins. I live in hope that they weren't real coffins, but I didn't know I was nine um, and a group of uh, strikers. And I went back to my mum and said, I understand there were dead people in boxes on the pavement on me. That just seems wrong. Um, and I, my mother is not political at all, but I can still hear her words. Oh, darling, you must watch the news this evening. There's a lady called Mrs. Thatcher and she agrees with you that some things are not acceptable. I can still hear her saying that. I didn't really understand what she meant. But Mrs. Thatcher apparently agreed with me that a pile of coffins on the pavement was unacceptable. And that lodged in my brain as if things are, you know, if you think something's wrong, you, you can say so. It's okay to say so. And you should stand up for what you believe. Um, so I think I became politically aware in that sense at that point. And of course, then that was, you know, 79. But then, I, you know, I, I led a completely normal, not particularly political life. When I, when I got to um, Oxford Poly and I was involved with the Oxford Union, I think that probably honed my, my more detailed interest in mm. political thinking. But I, I did a maths degree. I'm a, I'm a scientist. I'm not a, you know, I'm not an arts uh, Education, you know, I thought I was always a bit rubbish at history, or That's I thought I was. You know, other people were just better at me. Well, to actually be interested in numbers. Oh, it, causes any, it causes no end of bother everywhere, so I always want more data. But actually, I'm, I make decisions on the basis of evidence, and I gather evidence most effectively through numbers. You know, different people process information in different ways, but definitely numbers is my, my favourite place to be in that sense. Um, so I wasn't, but I was fascinated by the young politicians, and I was there. Uh, same time, people like Michael Gove, um, to watch these extraordinary young minds. I can, I mean, Michael Gove was dazzling as a 19-year-old young Scot who, you know, was afraid of nobody, but had this extraordinary articulacy, this ability to construct an argument. And I do remember watching him thinking, well, today he's arguing on this side and tomorrow he's arguing on that side. And that, that was completely beyond me because either you believed in something or you didn't. I couldn't couldn't really get my head around the, the ability to debate in that purist sense that those Scottish schools used to teach. I think sadly don't anymore um, mm. in the same way. But I remember developing this fascination with that. And I had a, uh, had a boyfriend whose father was an MP and um, he used to talk to me about his work and about his constituency work. And that's probably what got my attention most. The, the idea that there was a job that existed where you could look after this big family um, was how I viewed it at age 18, 19. Uh, I thought it was extraordinary. I do remember thinking then, wow, what an amazing thing. If ever that crossed my path, that would be an extraordinary job to be able to do. And then, you know, I became a chartered accountant and I worked in the city and then I moved to Northumberland and ran businesses and was not in that space. So didn't really think about it particularly. And then I got involved in North, wonderful Northumberland community life. Um, you know, a young mum with two kids, um, family business to help my husband run and so on and so on. Um, but I got involved in community life. And then I came at it unexpectedly to me and everyone else, I think, uh, from that direction, which was there's a local issue that needs fighting for 
oh am you're noisy get out there go and tell them what you think <laughs> and, and suddenly i found myself on a, on a community platform and running events and gathering people together and harnessing energy and, and suddenly i was sort of behaving a bit like you know what a campaigner does and then suddenly i was a candidate um encouraged i have to say by michael gove who declared that you know it was time i got involved so it's all his fault <laughs> very very good um yeah one thing leads to another but it's um it's good to have um uh, existing politicians or other people um encourage people especially you know, we know that that's so important from uh, especially for women getting women into politics i think enormously so i think that's a really really important fact i think we are we are prone to being um as women good at really getting on with things and we're not we're not worried about glory or getting the medal it's not a very female characteristic not wishing to be gender specific but it doesn't seem to be mm. uh, we're all about delivery um, yeah. and politics often looks like it's all about look at me look at me actually it isn't when you're in it vast majority of the time isn't about that it is about delivery but i think women perhaps don't realize that and actually the the you know the female uh, drivers are incredibly important to effective politics. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So, defence is a big passion area for you. Am I right? It's become absolutely um, a really important one. So, interestingly, uh, when I got my head around the idea that I would stand for election, and I challenged myself on what was, you know, what were the most important things, there were local community issues. If anyone hasn't heard about dueling the A1, the most important road transport campaign in the last 50 years, as far as we're concerned in Northumberland, you know, there was a really important sort of investment questions. But actually, that very old uh, adage that what's the first thing that, you know, government is for is to defend its people uh, resonated really strongly with me. Um, and it, you know, I, I kind of took on, I suppose, uh, a sense of responsibility that that was something you know, that I was going to be asked to do. If I got elected, I would be one of 650 people who determined uh, the safety and the choices uh, we made in defending our citizens. So um, I didn't know anything about it, if I'm honest, any more than the average punter in the street. It was a thing. Amazing people who choose to serve our country, do their thing, and I, a civilian, <laughs> sit back and hope it'll just happen around me if it needs to. Uh, you know, I was mm. really in that space. Um, I've got an RAF base in my constituency, uh, oh. so I was able to, um, you know, get to know both the people who, you know, live in live in our communities who work there, um, but more about what the RAF do, and it's all about um, air defence, the RAF boomer. So, a really important, silent part of the, the kind of machinery of defence. Um, and then I uh, got elected, and I f fairly accidentally, as so often, um, I was on the public accounts committee. And there were some issues came up about um, military accommodation. And because I've got quite a lot in my patch, I said to the chair, oh, I'm happy to lead on this. You know, this is something that's important to my constituents, apart from this being a national issue. Absolutely happy to look on. And I fell down this rabbit hole of, of some real horrors, real horrors. Uh, and being, as I have mentioned, fairly, you know, blunt in my speaking, I mentioned it to a few people. And suddenly I seem to become all my colleagues person to go to I know Anne Marie knows all about that go and talk to her mm. um which of course is how this place works politics is is like that you 
you develop special interests, then colleagues, you know, will hopefully respect and trust your voice on a subject um, and, you know, will will work with you on it. Um, so this became a really important issue for me. And in, in so doing, sort of opened up a whole load of other areas. I joined the Armed Forces Parliamentary Scheme, which is run, amazing scheme run within Parliament for yeah. um, MPs to educate themselves about so military cool. matters. Amazing. Um, so through that, I was able to meet a great many more people and discover both some extraordinary things, world leading in so many of the things we do, uh, the finest, literally the finest people in the world. You know, the rest of the world wants to be trained like our British Armed Forces are. I mean, extraordinary people. No, that's not true. They're ordinary people who do extraordinary things, who are able to take uh, their ordinary selves to a level which is simply disproportionate to anything you can imagine as a civilian mm. um it amazing i am in awe of all of them um yeah. but in doing that i discovered the, both the complexity uh, of defense and those international relationships and from a sense of coming from a sense of advocacy for the people who's who are willing to i mean who choose to serve but also their families who not necessarily choose but do support them um, and I became, yeah, a, a passionate advocate for all of it, to understand it better, uh, to see if we could think about it better, how we could move with the times. And then, of course, found myself, and this was what's so weird, really, in areas of policy that my father was writing about 50 years ago, ah, uh, which was really fascinating. Interesting. So yeah. there's a really strange, um, you know, serendipity to the whole to the whole thing, which makes my mother laugh enormously. Is that, was that... Happen. Was that pointed out to you by your your mother at the time, or how did how did you know that these were areas, or you had you oh, studied so what he, he'd written, so, or so I I well I, if I'm honest, I probably hadn't read his books when I was in my teens, but I have them, and I have actually re recently reread them all, and indeed his endless um, because my mother kept a scrapbook, old school journalism, a big scrapbook of all his articles. Um, so he was he became a specialist in nuclear non-proliferation that became wow. his area of expertise um, in the sort of 50s and early 60s uh, and there I was you know being asked to vote on uh, you know new trident missiles for our you know most important continuous at sea deterrent our number one defense issue there's extraordinary you know circularity there yeah and it hasn't changed and my passion doesn't come from him because he's never he'd never spoken to me about it and I hadn't really read his stuff but it's absolutely common sense the most important thing we do is to provide effective defense barriers that mean the enemy will not attack us yeah. and there's a simplicity to defense which I think often gets lost in the unbelievably amazing complicated technology that exists in the uh you know, complexity of human interrelationships that go with what creates defence walls. But at the end of the day, defence of a nation is effective if it stops the enemy having a go. Yeah. So that you're getting it right if the enemy doesn't have a pop at you, and you're not getting it right uh, if they are. <laughs> <laughs> key, yeah. Key points, and it may key not be point. a bomb coming over the. <laughs> <laughs> over the water it can come in lots of different ways well yeah quite quite so um you well you you became minister for the armed forces uh and uh soon you know not long after you you um were promoted to the cabinet uh and you were secretary of state for diffid 
And that is one of the jobs that I've heard so many um, first accounts from people who sort of got it and thought, firstly, they're like, oh, Diffid, oh yeah, that's the department that exists. And then they go like, oh, what do I think about Diffid? And they probably might be a bit sceptical going in. And then quite soon when, you know, when they see what is done firsthand or sort of see the expertise in the department, people tend to uh, change their opinion about it. And I just wondered whether this, you fell in the same camp because I, I remember you'd written, I think you'd written an article outlining scepticism about, you know, many parts of the aid budget, which probably, you know, there's still quite a lot to be sceptic about. But um, I just wondered, you know, what was your personal journey going in before and after having seen it firsthand? Uh, so it was, uh, first of all, it was unexpected, genuinely. Apparently it wasn't unexpected to others, but it was to me. Uh, the Prime Minister had made me Minister for the Armed Forces. I'd been Minister for Defence Procurement um, last year, so getting very involved in the sort of defence tech side of things, if you like. And then after the general election uh, in December last year, uh, he promoted me to be Minister of the Armed Forces, which is, according to, uh, you know, everyone, the coolest job in government because you mm. get to basically <laughs> be the cheerleader for all your armed forces. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, what's not to love and what's not to, you know, to be able to say you guys and girls are all just amazing. Thank you for what you do in various different forms. Um, so I was just settling into that. In fact, we'd, we'd been on a trip to South Sudan. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd been handing out medals. Honestly, I was like, somebody's asking me to do something that the Queen does. This is extraordinary. But we went to South Sudan to hand out medals <laughs> to our amazing Royal Engineers and the others who had been working as UN peacekeepers in yeah. one of the uh, camps there. So an extraordinary visit. And I got back and then I was uh, going to Washington to talk uh you know international diplomacy with a number of people in washington um i'd been in post you know eight weeks and i get a phone call to say um prime minister will be it was very funny first call went that was odd that was that was like a foreign ringtone i said yeah yeah i'm in washington you are coming back for tomorrow aren't you <laughs> i was like why i'll <laughs> see how did, how did i miss this i i just you know, i wasn't expecting it at all um, <laughs> anyway i got back uh and the sweet one of the sweetest things about the civil service i discovered is that they know literally everything that's going on yeah so they knew where i was going in fact they'd organized all the transition activity before anyone had told me what i was going to do as a new job it was no the way. funniest funniest sweet thing so i sat there going okay i'm going across number 10 do any of you know where i'm going next as clearly i'm being moved and leaving all of you and they all just sat there laughing at me smiling they said yeah yeah we know i was like well that doesn't seem right that you should all know before i do <laughs> it was the sweetest thing so as i came out having seen the prime minister and he asked me if i would take on the role um i was you know politely manhandled into a car and taken to my new office where mm. all my belongings were sitting on my desk and everything <laughs> that I had you're like this is a very surreal world that we live in yeah um and so there I was as Secretary of State for for Tifid and uh yeah no I have written before I think the challenge I'd always had both with un understanding or perhaps not understanding the complexity of how we uh spend our overseas development uh investment on behalf of the taxpayer um is uh, that I was brought up in a in an old-fashioned sense that charity begins at home and that we should, you know, uh, make sure that we uh, look after our, our friends and neighbours. But of course, we live in a in a completely global world, as the pandemic has more than amply demonstrated to us. Mm -hmm. uh, 
driving uh, impacts to help countries climb up a ladder of growth, of stability, uh, of educational, um, you know, reach for all, especially for girls, um, helping, uh, you know, farmers move from subsistence farming through to, uh, you know, more proactive uh, routes to market, all those sorts of changes in, in policy, which we can bring our, our UK skills um, to those countries, to, part, to partners. And I think one of the greatest frustrations for me with DFID when I got in there, a, firstly was to discover that there were all these unbelievably amazing people, world leading in their specialties that nobody knows about. Mm, I mean, how, how, yeah. how, was, how is that that we, <laughs> nobody knew that these are, these are our people, you know, yeah. and we should be so proud of them. That's so um, true. And, sec- and secondly, that the rest of the world thinks we are the superpower of all superpowers when it comes to international development. Um, I had no idea that A, we were that good at it, uh, or B, that the rest of the world, comparing us with everybody else, you know, when you look out from the rest of the world, um, realised much more than we did what we have and what we are doing to help try to, you know, in the old-fashioned sense of the word, make the world a better place. Um you know the the uh, uh, those my childhood. I'm this old. Still had sort of uh, you know those strange events where women were uh, wandered about platforms in bikinis and high heels, and then were asked what did they want, and they said world peace, and that was you know <laughs> how women were supposed to portray themselves. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. do you know what I think? Diffid does more to try and help countries get themselves on the right track so that they can get to stability, which is the most effective thing you'll ever do to help world peace, which is to help countries be economically stronger. Um, And I do, I would, I would sit there sometimes in this big office and think those women who were, you know, peddled about and were basically, you know, objectified uh, in those very, very strange uh, events that exist less often, at least now, actually, this is, this is, we're doing it here. The gritty delivery of how do you develop, how do you try and drive world peace is to help weak and vulnerable countries to become stronger, to educate their women who are going to then educate their boys uh, that economic empowerment is better than killing your neighbour uh, in mm. a way of you know protecting your family. Those those skill sets, those macro level uh, changes to countries that simply don't have the uh, resource to do it themselves yet uh, is led by the UK. We yeah. are world leaders in that stuff. It's mm. extraordinary. So I was unbelievably proud to be the Secretary of State uh, for DFID, mostly because I got to take all this adulation about these amazing people who work, you know, in our in our civil service uh, on their behalf. Um, honestly, it seemed seemed totally unfair. I kept trying to pass it on, but in their wonderful civil service, very. Uh, demure and you know modest way they would just say you know no no off you go secretary of state yeah it's very very touching um but we can really make a difference so i think uh if i had frustrations uh in the role before you know the pandemic hit and everything then became very focused on helping those most vulnerable countries not to fall over completely um is that we make better use of what we do and that we do it more directly the taxpayer should be really proud of what we do um, now, there's some programs that don't work, and we've all read the Daily Mail over the years where the, you know, the, the hopeless story, you know, the waste of taxpayers' money, X or Y, mm. is shocking. And it is shocking, and it shouldn't have happened, and it shouldn't have fallen over. 
um, for whatever reason. But the complexity of programming that's delivered um, in you know very vulnerable countries with very vulnerable populations, uh, all those things is really hard to do. And I'm all for an 80-20 output. You know, we shouldn't just say this is too hard. There's risk. It might fail. So we'll not bother. We need to provide our people with you know the support and the you know the protections we can but that shouldn't stop us getting out there mm. um, and trying and trying to make a difference and i think sharing more effectively what we do uh, this is you know this is taxpayers money you know this is this Basically, is yours and my taxes being spent um you know by diffid as it was you know 10 billion a year and then in other departments running international programs another you know three to four billion a year mm. um that's a lot of money and it's a tiny amount in the scheme of all the money that government spends every year, but it's a lot of money and the impacts are so powerful. And I think we, yeah, we have for a long time failed. It's just a thing that we do because it's a good thing to do. And it, all of that big tick, but actually people should be proud. One of the most fascinating things I uh, discovered on a visit to Scotland, I went to see the team, there's a big, big um, team of the international development um, programmers based um, in Scotland. I went to visit them and they, they brought together all sorts of interesting Scottish groups who were involved, civil society groups, that sort of thing. And I discovered that the whole of Scotland has for decades been sort of uh, committed in a sponsoring sort of way to Malawi. Mm, yeah. Who, yeah, who, yeah. Who knew? I had no idea. I'm not Scottish. Yeah. Well, Jack um, McConnell was a guest um, on What Were You Thinking? And um, he was First Minister of Scotland and yeah. did all of that. Yeah, and it's, he still, you know, he still has very close ties to Malawi. Yeah, it's, really, it's incredible. a really wonderful um, kind of national endeavour, if you like, relationship mm. through a school doing something with another school to a church relationship uh, to charities that yeah. run education programmes or food programmes, all sorts of things. Uh, but a really fascinating sort of overt connection yeah. uh with a you know with a developing country um and you know malawi is a very very poor country indeed. so really i for me the really important thing about uh how we do our international should be that we are all much more engaged in it and understand the impact it has because as covid demonstrated to us uh and you know as the poems say we are not an island <laughs> even though the geography tells you otherwise. Uh, we, are, <laughs> we are not an island. We are connected. We are a transit hub. We are a world leader. We have the time zone. Uh, you know, we are at the centre of the whole of our planet and interconnected in so many ways to it that to ignore where there is, uh, you know, hunger, uh, disruption, uh, you know, climate shocks, all of those things yeah. is to is to allow ourselves to put ourselves more at risk. So, with my, if you like, defence hat on, if our if our purpose as uh, governments is to protect our people, doing uh, investment into countries who need to be stronger is an important part of how we defend our own people. Yeah, well, I'm glad you said climate shocks as well, because um, when I, well, my experience um, when I was in the department as special advisor was um, focusing a lot on getting climate change higher on the agenda in the environment, which, to be honest, wasn't always um, <laughs> easy going. But I think it's it's increasingly uh, understood, as you say, as you point out, sort of interconnected with all the other development issues at play. And I was going to ask you, because 
you were in the unprecedented situation that you know you're the secretary of state you're delivering all of this um these programs and reforms and change you know doing doing the things um that you do as a secretary of state looking after your department and all of a sudden it's obviously gets merged with the foreign office and even though you know you know there's obviously huge potential for that merger it you know can still imagine it must be quite a strange thing to sort of you know handing over all the issues that probably keep you up at night all of a sudden become responsibility of someone who was already probably being kept up at night most of the time you know with hong kong russia u.s elections and all other stuff i mean what what's um and i'll be honest i thought you i thought you you were gonna become the deputy uh for, for development or at least i've been calling for uh having a deputy role and uh, i thought you'd obviously be very good at that for obvious reasons but what what was that like that merger and um what are your um you know what was your advice to to dominic Raab? so we were having a busy year because covid was rampaging across the world and we were still all trying to get to grips with a how you know dangerous a, a new virus it was and indeed what you know the decisions the west were taking weren't necessarily the decisions that developing countries needed to take in order to sustain their um citizens uh, health as best they could and indeed well-being so uh we were very busy with that and of course the crash in the economy meant we had to do a huge piece of work to stop programs because we had to take nearly three billion pounds out of the budget across the board um really really difficult job and of course for DFID, you know themselves a, a department that had never had a budget cut issue this was emotionally very, very challenging. Yeah. Uh, and I have to say the staff were extraordinary. I mean, professional beyond belief. I set um, a very simple sort of you know, direction, really, which was the last thing we will cut is anything that risks uh, direct impact to children's lives. I, I, I will never sleep at night if I think I've got a programme where... Uh, we were, you know, sustaining a child's life and giving them hope and we cut a programme. And they took that absolutely to their hearts. Uh, and we cut programmes which had enormous value for lots of other reasons. But if there wasn't the money, then, you know, those are the ones we would cut. We did that because, of course, not all of overseas uh, development uh, assistance money is spent by DFID. hasn't been for a number of years. We did that with the other departments. Yeah. Really, you know, DFID. But so... Foreign Secretary um, became involved at that point, partly because obviously the Foreign Office had a few, uh, some small programmes, but not a huge amount of money. Um, but it was an opportunity uh, for him to get a sense of, of, you know, the whole thing and indeed the complexity of how ODA is spent by government. Um, so that was really good. So we actually spent a lot of time together um, having to go through and take these unbelievably difficult decisions on what to what programmes to stop running, what to defer and so on. Um, but it gave him the opportunity to get a, get a bit of a handle on, you know, at least at a, a sort of big picture level, the areas of uh, policy where, you know, DFID brings this world-class expertise. Um, so by the time we got to uh, September and the actual merger, um, he was fairly well tuned in already to the, the new issues, as you say, that were going to land onto his already fairly busy desk one of the big challenges of the murder is not in fact not uh change as such in country 
uh, we've been driving for some time already that all the component parts of UK abroad, if you like, um, be that defence attaches, trade commissioners, um, you know, the, the, the development teams, um, any, you know, climate, you know, DEFRA type investments, all sat in practical terms under the ambassador as the sort of chief executive in country. Uh, so that we were thinking in relation to the country that we were in, uh, in a much more holistic way about how we were supporting that country to develop, to grow, to build yeah. its, ex its own expertise and so on. So what a lot of the mergers is really is getting Whitehall to think in a much more coherent way about all those tools that the UK government has uh, in its international arsenal um, than perhaps it does before. And to actually break down some of that silo thinking, you know, uh, foreign office does, you know, gritty diplomacy, you know, shouts at bad Russian uh, versus different does lovely, nice things that, you know, helps make clean water in the pool. <laughs> actually, they're yeah, all, yeah, you know, yeah. it's all UK government spending exactly. UK taxpayers' money and employing brilliant, brilliant civil servants to work in a country to help that country to be stronger, more resilient, um, more stable, help world peace in that, you know, mm. broad sense of the world. That's what... That's what the Prime Minister is driving towards, is to make sure that the FCDO is the outward face of, you know, the UK across the world uh, yeah. and that it can instinctively bring all the tools available to it together to support any country, any issue in a way that's been more difficult uh, when it was two separate things. So it's not without challenge at a logistical sense because, you know, the, the cultures are different because Diffid have been running away from the Foreign Office hub for 23 years. So, you know, there are cultural challenges, there are logistic challenges, yeah. there's all sorts of things. But actually, the, the mission, the driving mission that the Prime Minister has set um, is that he wants it to be coherent and, you know, under, it should, you know if it's understood by uh, those in country, as well as it is here, then we're starting to get it right. Yeah. So, the for, you know, the Foreign Secretary's got a, got a big cultural challenge on his hands i mean you know the, the technical skills are there now and they carry on you know regardless but to create something that is much greater than the sum of its parts is is the real mission exactly so one of the biggest things that we've got coming up in 2021 is is cop which is obviously um taking place in glasgow you know which is a is going to be a hugely important moment for the planet and of course the agenda to improve climate change but also has the real potential, I think, for, for Britain and also for the Prime Minister uh, on the world stage. You know, it's post-Brexit, Liberal Britain. It's an issue that people are increasingly really care about. What do you see as its biggest opportunity, as it were? So COP26 is uh, a critical part, I think, of helping the planet to uh, reset. The COVID pandemic has you know oddly you know if it's possible to see you know the silver linings I'm not sure it is yet but uh is that actually it affords the opportunity to make transformational change and to think differently um the question of you know climate shocks uh whether if you're a you know climate skeptic and you think it's because the planet is shifting it's the way it faces the sun so it's heating up or whether uh, it's because the Chinese are building power stations with, you know, filthy coal use and pumping out CO2. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. I mean, it matters because we need to fix all of it and try for what we can fix. Uh, and 
behave differently. For me, COP's really important because it's about developing real resilience. COVID has demonstrated where within the healthcare we perhaps didn't have as a planet enough resilience, but also thinking about how we adapt. And that's not going back to the Stone Age and, you know, not consuming anymore uh, and, you know, living off, you know, beans and rice. It's about saying, how do we live differently in better symbiosis with our planet uh, from the, you know, agonising Attenborough programmes which set out the, you know, the impact of human um, abuses of resource, if you like, uh, across the planet and how that's impacting on our cohabiting uh, fluffy and feathered friends through to um, the wastefulness in the way we live. I was brought up, my wonderful granny who'd lived through uh, the war, she lived through the war in France, um, which was a pretty uh, tight uh, and mm. narrow, uh, if you will, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't anything unless uh, you found ways to get hold of it, uh, was brought me up in a very frugal sort of way. You know, we didn't have very much, so frugality was normal. But I didn't think of it as frugal. It was just making best use of the resources. Yeah. Um, and I think where uh, economic growth has, you know, developed well, uh, and that's fantastic, rather than making best use of those resources, we have become relatively profligate in lots of ways. And this is an opportunity to change the dial and say there are plenty of ways to have you know a wonderful life with all sorts of wonderful things uh and a good quality of life and we want to encourage those countries that aren't there yet to find ways to grow and develop so that their citizens too can have a better quality of life uh without profligacy and you know, that goes from you know what can a small child do they can turn the light off when they leave a room and they can not let the tap run when they're brushing their teeth through to uh, you know, how should we, you know, use our energy policy? How should we, um, you know, use cars if we're moving away from hydrocarbons because they have this negative CO2 impact? Um, let's think about, you know, how we move around. COVID has demonstrated indeed that we can work in different ways. Um, all those, all those challenges. Uh, I think uh, the last big COP um, in Paris in 2015 uh, challenged every country to sort of if you like, submit a list of things that they were going to do. The Paris Agreement was a commitment uh, for every country to say, we're going to do X, Y, and Z differently, and this is our plan. Um, all those plans were about to be submitted for, if you like, the next five years. They'll all appear in December, and that's really good. But the, the, mm. there's the plan, and then there's delivering it. And I think the UK can be an incredibly important leader in that uh, because we are a nation... Uh, of inventors and businesses who uh, think globally in what they do. We've seen it um, very closely in, in my DFID role uh, in the medical space when there was a challenge. The UK businesses just, you know, literally rose extraordinarily. So, well, you know, we've got ideas, you know, let's, let's go for it. Um, and I think uh, across the climate challenge space, and that's everything, that's use of water, it's how we grow our food, it's how we move around, it's what resources we use, how we recycle resource. You know, there's, plastic has its uses and it is a way of using hydrocarbons without putting CO2 into the air. But why not use it more slowly, more considerately? All those questions. I think, I think the world is getting to a crunch point where it, it can see, uh, it understands because it can see uh, the dangers. Uh, so COP26 is the opportunity and, you know, led by the Prime Minister and working with the Italians to really stand on that world stage and say 
uh, if we're going to save the world we love and make it sustainable for our children and our grandchildren, then we have to do it differently. And we, the UK, are willing to lead in doing that. You know, we've set a really aggressive net zero target for ourselves as a country. Uh, and we've got quite a lot to do to reach that. You know, a lot more different ways of living is going to have to come. But it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just different. And I think there, there the interesting message is change isn't necessarily bad. It is just change. And that's habit forming. So I think our, our children are the ones who are driving it. And that's extraordinary in a way. Mm, yeah. uh, their, their voice, uh, you know, their voice is the one that we have to harness and find the right outlets for not because they're petulant children who want you know more sweeties or whatever but because they're they're able to see perhaps more clearly than we can um that you know life is life is important and sustaining it is done by finding the right solution they don't necessarily have the right solution but they have the right instinct and it's our mm, yeah it should be our it should be our privilege uh, to be able to deliver that for them so that's our great challenge very very good so before i forget um the 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 hardest out of the three questions as to you know individual place and then object is is the object so Mm. what object is is would you say has uh played an important role in your your life and potentially even shaping your views or politics so this is a really really difficult question um actually oddly um, I know I'm not, it very, is. I'm, not, really I'm not a very materialistic sort of person so I am um, other than my uh, world famous collection of boots which I love I don't think I can count them I'm not, <laughs> I love your like, red if ones it, if this is like desert island discs you know I can't I can't take them with me you know um, <laughs> but uh, I think the, the one thing um, uh, which I was given uh, when I became an MP and I was given it by Frank Field that inestimably wonderful uh, now retired uh, and in the House of Lords MP um, was Gerald Kaufman's book on how to be a minister and he gave it to me he's, he's, a, he's great friends with one of my constituents who bless him had high hopes for his new young young newly elected MP oh, yes, I'm, sure one, I'm sure one day she'll be a minister he said which is sweet uh, anyway Frank Field's found me about week three of my new parliamentary career in May 2015 and he gave me this book and he said you should read this Every future minister should read this book. And I was a bit taken aback. I said, all right, okay. So I thought I better had because, you know, it would be bad to see him in a corridor and not You're be able to say i quizzed it. on it, exactly. Exactly, I thought, oh, former Labour MP's book. Okay, it's going to be something really not at all to my liking. Anyway, I read it. I was completely gripped. I read it. I stayed up till two in the morning. I just read it all the way through. It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, insight, and it's his own insight, but I think his own perspective across all his colleagues over many years um but if you become a minister there are two really important diseases you must not catch ah. you must you must not catch ministerialitis and you must not catch <laughs> departmentalitis um both of which mean you stop remembering why it is that you're here yeah um you know the the reason you are a mem- member of parliament is because people have used their extraordinary extraordinary tool their ballot paper to choose you to come and be their advocate here so just because you're in a department and you're in charge of it you're if you like the chairman of the department as the as the secretary of state um 
you're only part of a government that is there because people voted for you. Um, or because you think, oh, I'm a minister now, I'm terribly important and I've got a very, very nice car with a driver and a box and I'm very important and people organise my life for me, which is really nice and very helpful, I have to say. Um, but it's, it's irrelevant. It's completely yeah. irrelevant because actually you, me, Anne-Marie, this person that, you know, I live within is only in that role because our government is in power because people voted for me. They chose to send me to Westminster and exactly. everything else yeah. has to always be secondary to that. So this book is absolutely fascinating and I keep it by my bed. It's got terrible tea stain marks on it now because I use it as a, as a tea. I shouldn't say that, should I? Uh, but it's, <laughs> I, I drop into it often and I, I flick through and it goes, oh, I, I remember that bit. Oh, that reminds me of X colleague or Y colleague. Yeah. Uh, and it's the most salutary uh set of set of words that any any young mp could be given and if it sticks in your mind and it reminds you whenever you get too big for your boots in any particular role that you're there because your constituents asked you to try and help their bit of the world become a better place then you're doing it right yeah i'm going to ask you about your most crazy experience as a minister and actually your the departments you've been in i'm sure lend themselves to some really <laughs> Yes, uh, anecdotes more so than I don't know. Um, DWP. DWP. <laughs> um, so what's what 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 anecdotes jump to mind? Oh goodness, extraordinary things I've done. Well, uh, well, the most extraordinary place, if we're picking a place, was in a uh, very small plane flown by a I don't think entirely sober Russian pilot. Um, leaving Juba, flying over the Nile and landing on an airfield that I don't think even the RAF in the war would have considered particularly wow. salutary, to then go and meet the most wonderful, honestly, the most wonderful collection of local councillors in the nearby town whose citizens were all living in this UN camp because the town was full of hoodlums trying to kill each other. Um, standing next to the Nile, this river that I read about in books and mm. Tintin and, you know, these enormous baobab trees, um, as they tried to explain in very poor English uh, what it was they hoped that the UK would do to help them rebuild schools and provide books. I travelled halfway around the world and the request was, can you help us with books? Yeah. Um, ex yeah. Extraordinary mind-boggling. On, on, you know, by the side of the Nile. I mean truly truly a bit bonkers uh and i've been in tanks and i've been flown in apache helicopters and i've uh the one thing that nobody did to me was take me underwater in a submarine um but pretty much everything else with extraordinary people mm. um i think everything about politics you get the opportunity to meet people in whatever setting be it the local food bank or indeed someone who flies an f-35 jet which is the most extraordinary mm. piece of kit invent yet invented mm. um so cool i i get to meet so i cool. get to meet these extraordinary people who every day do something that genuinely makes a difference and turns the dial and it's it's the most extraordinary privilege to be an mp genuinely i think we all pinch ourselves every day and go wow how did i how did i get to be the person who advocates for all these people extraordinary I just got um, a memory flashback from actually um, watching um, the F-35 take off. 
loud. So <laughs> cool. I was like, yeah. you know, I was, I got, uh, obviously my boss was quite interested, interested into defense, but I, you know, had no mm. affinity with it whatsoever. And so every day I just got totally blown away because everything was just so new. And I was like, oh my God, everyone's so cool and so brave and so wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, one of my favorites was, and they decided they were, they were playing a trick on me. They wanted, I went to see the um, special forces training and uh, they were explaining how they can use a Chinook helicopter to do all sorts of extraordinary amazing mm. things you can hang out the back on a rope and uh, you can pick heavy things up and move them around i mean it's a, it's a pretty cool bit of kit um i said yeah it has a really strong downdraft minister so i don't even think i even know what that is but okay said so, all right you stand here we're going to bring this chinook in it's going to come and pick these big things up they're, they're about the same weight as a tank I was, okay i said wow um so it says fine so and it'll come down you'll feel the downdraft so I, I, you know, you imagine you can see the pictures of Iraq, can you, with all those dust bowls, that sort of thing. I thought that's what the downdraft is. You see that dust in my mind. Anyway, so I was standing, and in comes this Chinook, and it comes down and down and down and down, and then literally suddenly, you could you could sort of feel the wind, and then I flew backwards. I literally was flown off. Standing behind me were two great big burly men who clearly knew this was going to happen and were there to catch me. And I turned around and said, "Well, that was that was really mean." I said, "We wanted you to understand just." how powerful this is i'm like okay i got it now i've got it <laughs> they sort of, that's so, that was funny. so sweet was they were really enjoying uh not humiliating me but the just anticipation de- and demonstrating the power of these tools yeah, yeah. um but they were you know and then we had a cup of tea afterwards and we talked about their kids and the fact that one of them had a house which was rubbish and the plumbing didn't work and could i fix it for them yeah, yeah. and i was like oh my god you, you can fly a chinook you need me to fix your plumbing okay yeah, that's yeah. A, you know that seems like a fair trade um extraordinary people extraordinary places so just to just to end off some quick fire questions so firstly who is your favorite non-tory politician Oh, so I developed a really, really great friendship uh, with Ruth Smith, who was the MP for uh, Stoke-on-Trent, who lost her seat yeah. uh, in the last election. Um, we, in fact, got to know each other on the Armed Forces Parliamentary Scheme, uh, so maybe messing about in boats and getting cold in the snow had something to do with it. Uh, we couldn't be more politically different, but I think we were both believers in truth and fighting for what's right. I love this. We've come full circle. We've come full circle because she <laughs> yeah, was the guest and I asked her the same question and you were the answer. So isn't oh, really? that nice? Okay. Isn't that nice? Ooh, that was lucky. And, <laughs> I'd be in trouble otherwise, wouldn't I? <laughs> what would you say your, your biggest bugbear is in politics? Oh, that's a very difficult question. Picking just I think one the, out the of many. Slow, the, uh, the slowness of uh, change when there's something that needs fixing. Yeah, yeah. So I'm all about delivery. So if it clearly isn't working, why does it take so long to change it? Yeah, yeah, that's a good um, one. That's and when you get one. inside the system as a minister, you can see the layers and why. But the question is still why? <laughs> Shouldn't yeah. take that long if it's wrong. Yeah. And what's the best advice you've ever been given? Uh, the only person that matters is you looking about yourself in the mirror the next day. Don't ever make a decision that you can't live with. That is a strong note to end on, Anne-Marie. Thank you so much for joining What Were You Thinking? It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you are looking for more content, sign up as a friend of a big tent by visiting bigtent.org.uk and using the coupon code podcast to claim your first three months for free. 
There are many events and private meetings with interesting people from Westminster and outside Westminster. So it's definitely worthwhile. And don't miss next week's episode. See you then. Bye.